the message this morning, I entitled it, The Lost Opportunity. And as you know, there's oftentimes there's things where we've got an opportunity, we don't even realize it, and we miss the opportunity that comes our way. Well, that happens a lot. And what we want to talk about is a lost opportunity that was much more significant than what we could ever imagine. Many of you remember about 1990, 99, there was a lot of things going on, a lot of things were happening. And there was a small group of guys, they were still in, in the, still a couple of guys that were working together, uh, still in school, but they were coming up with some really interesting software. And so they went to a company and its name was, let me see, it was called, let me see, C-U-C-U -C -U Foundation. Anyways, they, talk, they brought it to them and said, We'd really like to show you what we're doing. We think you'd, be in, you'd like to buy this, and we're willing to sell it for a million dollars. And the guy looked at it, and they went through it and showed what they were doing, what they could do, and they said, no, I'm sorry, we can't do it. They came back a little better and said, okay, we're willing to drop the price. We'll drop the price down to $750,000. And the CEO looked at it again and said, no, I don't think so. About five years later, he found out that the group that he decided he didn't want to work with, they had a name, and that name was called Google. <laughs> Google has over $200 billion in assets. And you talk about something that you do that you rest. I, I think about that guy. He must wake up at night thinking, I should have taken it. I should have taken it. I should have taken it. What was I thinking? But what we're talking about now is lost opportunities that are more and more significant because what we see, what Jesus is doing in this passage we're looking at together. It is Palm Sunday. It is a special day. And we're going to be looking together in the Gospel of Luke. And now, the Gospel of Luke. And so what we're going to be looking at, the Gospel of Luke according to Luke, as you know, all four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell the basic story. They all tell about Jesus coming in triumphal entry. They talk about the donkeys. They talk about all those things. All four tell the story, but each tells it from a slightly different perspective. Now, that's very common. You often hear when, like this when a big traffic crash or something, and you ask people, what happened? Well, people give you certain things. I mean, they all know it was a crash. Everybody knows that, but people have a different take on it. Well, the way I saw it was this. And the guy says, well, no, I, I think it happened this way. And that's very common. And it, it was happening in that time, too. And so what we see here is we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is such a beautiful, I can't say it. They're all four of them are great. But Gospel of Luke, I've been doing a lot of work in that. And I'm really, it's a beautiful book. And this is a great section. And it's very excessive because it's far more significant, these lost opportunities about Google, as big as that is. But the Gospel, according to Luke, is such a great book. And so just to give you a little bit of context, we're going into Luke chapter 19. Just before that, we've got several things going on. We've got the blind man who said, I don't know that, that. All I know is once I couldn't see, but now I do. I, I can see. And that's a big thing that happens. Zacchaeus, this is in chapter 18. You have Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the little guy who climbed up in the tree? Okay. That's the story that comes there in that chapter. And then the parable of the minas that he said, I'm going to give you, the Lord said, I'm going to give you $10. I'm going to send this guy $100 and this guy $1,000. When you come back, tell me what you did with the money and how you used it and how you grew it. And they didn't do a very good job of it. And so that's the context that brings us in the passage we're looking at. And here it's a section that now all these pilgrims are coming up 
to Jerusalem. And so these many people, many people from the northern part of Israel, they're coming down for Passover. And so literally thousands of people are traveling down along to come to this place, and they want to come to Jerusalem. And as we know, during that time, of the, during Passover and all this taking place, the places are packed with people. It's hard to find a place to stay. It's really very difficult. But it's quite a job to do it. For example, when people are coming up and they come up towards Jerusalem, it's like you have a very windy road that's very dangerous at times at night. And it's like, it's like 17 miles going uphill all the way. So if you're not in good shape, you, you might be by the time you get up there. But it is an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. And you come up and you come around this rise, and then suddenly there's the temple. And it's this amazing rush. I mean, I've had several opportunities to, to be in Israel and to co-lead trips and stuff. But it's amazing when you finally come over this ridge, and, and there it is. And it's like, this is amazing. I mean, here it is. And it is remarkable. And it's certainly about going up. It sure is. And so... Here's a passage where it talks, and Jesus starts talking about this. It says, when he, that is Jesus, said these things we just talked about, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So in other words, he's part of that group that's following up that road from Jericho, 17 miles, all the way up until they got to the place here in Jerusalem. And it says, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives. Let's stop there a second because that's a very important section of this passage. It says he approached Bethphage and Bethany. These were two little villages up over the top of the Mount of Olives. And I've had some great opportunities. I've gone from the Mount of Olives down and I've gone from down at the top and coming to the top. One of them, I had to go up when I didn't want to do that. I was co-leading this group and we had a woman in our group that was very slow I mean, she walked very slow. She was also just slow in other ways as well. And once again, for the ninth time, she asked me where the bathroom was. And so I told her, the bathroom is right here. And we're going to wait right here for you. So please, you go there, and you come right back. You got that? Right. I got it. I got it. Five minutes later, I look back. She's gone. And I am panicked. You know, there's the, the, the co-lead, I mean, the main leader guy who's there, Ronnie Simone, that some of you have met, and myself, and this lady is gone. And this place is packed with people. And I have no idea where he's going, so I said, okay, you go this way, this way, I'm going to go down, okay? Go down the Mount of Olives. So I'm kind of basically running this, all these huge tombs all there, and I'm running through there trying to go down. And sure enough, they're down at the bottom. She's standing there, and there's like 20 boys trying to sell things to her. And she's crying. I'm sweating like a pig. And I, the group is up there. And I, I'm going to call her Susan, but that's not her real name. Susan, can I help you? We need to go back up the mountain. She said, do we have to really? said, you know what? On second thought, I'm getting you a taxi. And so we got a taxi and got her around and got the end things actually went, it, went was okay. But it's a beautiful thing. When you're in the top of the mount, of that, there, the Mount of Olives, and you come over that ridge, it's just a beautiful, beautiful view. Some of you have been there, I know, and it's just amazing. And to think what this has been like when Jesus was coming in to this area and how unbelievable that must be. By the way, Bethany, these places, Bethany that it, that it mentions, and Bethphage, two little villages up on the other side of the mountain. And it's interesting, that's where Mary and Martha and stuff, that's where their little houses were up there. And so it's a very important place. So, so they sent two of his disciples, and here's what they said. Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you'll find a young donkey tied there on which no one's ever sat. 
untie it and bring it here. Like, okay, I can do that, but it's like, like who's going to get the donkey or how are we going to get the donkey? And he says, well, if anyone asks you, well, why you untie it, say, the Lord needs it. I've often thought, like, what were you a guy like there? And the guy comes up and said, uh, hey, uh, thanks so much. I need to borrow your donkey. Uh, are you kidding me? I mean, I use the donkey every day. Well, the Lord told me to. What Lord? Well, you know, Lord Jesus. I don't know any Lord Jesus. Well, the Lord tells you need it. I mean, it's like, you, you know, you come out there today and you say, say a guy's got a nice car and you say, you know, my Lord has told you I need your new car. You guys say, what kind of nutcase are you? So even then, it would seem rather strange. But obviously, Jesus is at work in this whole thing. He says, well, if anyone asks you why you untie say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left, and they found it just as he had told them. They said, yeah, there is a donkey there. And he said, we know that there is. And he said, as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, well, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, again, they said. And they brought it to Jesus. And they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And again, as we know from the culture of that time, it was sometimes, and particularly with somebody who was being honored, that what they would do, it said that they would just do something like spreading robes on the road that we talked about there coming up as well. And so it says, and by the way, it's an old picture of a medieval kind of thing, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And if you can see it from over this perspective, it looks like it's a little crushed in, by the way, but I don't think Jesus was that thin, but he may have been. But anyways, it's an interesting thing because it said, now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives. Again, there's several paths, but there's main one that basically goes right down through till you get to the bottom. And so now he, Jesus, came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they'd seen. And again, just think about it. We talked about Lazarus. I mean, not Lazarus. When we talked about these other guys we just talked about. Zacchaeus, these guys, these miracles, the blind man. People have got a lot to talk about. Do you see what Jesus did? That guy had been blind all his life, and Jesus helped him. He can see. Zacchaeus, he went up, Zachariah, he went up there. These things, all these things are coming to them. These people are trying to make sense of this amazing thing that God is doing. And so he said, they began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Now he came near down, came near to the path down the Mount of Olives. And for the Jewish people who knew their scriptures, for them, this must have been a huge significance. Because for them, there's a passage in the Old Testament that they would look at it and recognize that that is all about what God is doing this is a prophecy being fulfilled through this man named Jesus. He came down the Mount of Olives, the passage is Zechariah 9.9, and it goes like this. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey. Roop, roop, roop. People are going, I know what that means. That's what the prophet's been telling us. There it is, just two chapters. Malachi, Vera talks about that, about two chapters about that. Listen, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. In other words, they're saying an ancient prophecy is being fulfilled, and it seems like it's being fulfilled by this guy named Jesus. Now, of course, not everybody's going to believe that for sure, and it's not going to, you know, it's going to go a very wrong way as it goes on. 
but it's saying to them, look at things are happening here. God seems to be working in a remarkable way, and we need to see what God is going to do at this time. And so he takes this passage right here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Where have we heard that phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest? Where? His birth. From his birth to ultimately to his death. Blessed is the one, the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. And you can imagine these people with the palms and all that, the things that are going on. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven giving praise that God is doing a new thing in their time. And what a privilege that is. And that's not something they just wrote themselves. That comes right out of Psalm, 11, 18, Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the phrase that they use right out of the Old Testament scriptures, like most of these are. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what's interesting here is it says, blessed is the king. And what is significant is that this, among the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only, we have this here in Luke, only Luke uses the word king. None of the three use that. They don't use the word king. But what Luke does, he said, he really is the king. He's not the king there in Rome that controls us, but he is the king, the ultimate king. And so it's very important. But it's also dangerous because when the word gets around, you know that guy named Jesus? Yeah, they're calling him the king. Well, it wouldn't take long before that word got back to people saying, hey, there's another guy out there that thinks he's king, and we're the Romans, and we're in charge, and we're going to tell you what you're going to do. They're not going to be happy. But he's saying, you know what? Those who are seeing the miracles, those who are seeing what God has done, they are people who recognize He's not just a great guy. He's not just a wonderful guy. This is really the king, the ultimate king we have been waiting for generation after generation after generation. It's happening. It's happening in our time. The prophecies are coming true. And so it said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And then the passage then starts taking a little bit of a different turn. Because now the Pharisees have got something to say about this. As we know, Jesus had a lot of struggles with the Pharisees. Sometimes he's had some very good opportunities with them. He's been in, in their rooms and in their houses and had meals with them. Some of them were honest seekers who were trying to figure out who this guy Jesus was. Some of them, they were not honest at all. They were trying to find ways to trip him, make him make something stupid, make him do something that would make the Romans mad. And as we go on in this section, it becomes more and more that the leaders, not all of them, and certainly not all the people, but the leaders who were control in control were more and more finding a way to get Jesus in great trouble. And of course, it's exactly what happened. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, stop doing this. They're calling you king. Isn't that terrible? I can't believe they're doing that. Jesus says, you know what? I guess the reality is I really am a king. And, of course, I'm not going to like that. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, keep silence, the stones would cry out. I love that phrase. If all the people were quiet, even the stones would fade away, find some way 
to be able to rejoice over what God has done because there is a new king. His name is Jesus, and everything is going to change. And so this passage is beautiful. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silence, the stones would cry out. You can't stop him. You can't stop what's happening now that God is working in the life of this man, Jesus. R.C. Ryle is a very interesting writer. If you ever read some of his stuff, he's a terrific writer back in the 19th century, up there, 1800. Neat beard, I guess. But anyways, very, very godly guy. He was an Anglican minister, the first one, I think, first bishop in Liverpool in England. And he's a very good writer. And he has a little section here I just want to read to you. It's very short. But it's dealing with this section of why is it that this point that Jesus, who normally doesn't, you know, like take any claim from anybody, is suddenly making these statements about himself. Let me listen to this section just real quick. We are told that he, Jesus, rode a donkey like a king visiting his capital or a conqueror returning in triumph to his own land. We read of, quote, a whole crowd of disciples around him as he rode into the city joyfully praising God in loud voices. This is strikingly unlike the general tenor of our Lord's life. On other occasions, we see him withdrawing from public view, retiring into the desert, telling those that he had healed not to tell anyone about the healing. But on this occasion, everything is different. Our Lord seems to court public attention. He appears to want people to take notice of what he's doing. At first sight, it may seem difficult to know why our Lord behaves like this at this crisis moment in his life. On calm reflection, all is clear. Our Lord knew that the time had come for him to die for sinners on the cross. His work as the great prophet, as far as his earthly ministry was concerned, was almost finished. His work was a sacrifice of sin and substitutes for sinners. It remained to be accomplished. Before giving himself up as a sacrifice, he wanted to draw the attention of the whole Jewish nation to him. He says, therefore, the Lamb of God was about to be slain. The great sin offering was about to be killed. It was done right in all their eyes in Israel's, which, was ship, which was, should be fixed on him. This great thing was not done in a corner. Let us leave this whole passage with the cheerful reflection that the joy of Christ's disciples at his entry to Jerusalem, he came to be crucified, will prove to be nothing when compared to the joy of his people when he comes again to reign. It's a beautiful little passage, and I encourage you to read these ones by, by Ryle. They're excellent. But the point that he's making is really clear. What happened to Israel was a disaster. We know what happened in 70 AD when Titus came in with the four major legions coming with him. But really, the issue came back to the leaders of Israel. And for them, there was many who wanted to Jesus to be okay, but there's many who turned against them. So as he approached, this is in verse 41, as he approached, he saw the city and I love this phrase. It's so much, so interesting. He wept over it. 
For nearly 2,000 years, people have asked, what was he crying for? What was he weeping for? Some people say, well, he's weeping because he realized this was coming to him. He was going to do this. Other people say, well, no, he was weeping because Jerusalem, the, the great city, the city of David, was soon going to be destroyed. Hardly a rock upon another by the time they were done, when the Romans were finished. The reality, I imagine, it was probably it was both. There was weeping, I think, for Jesus to realize that there would be many people who saw the miracles, who saw incredible miracles that no one had ever seen, had seen God's power in a way that people had never seen, and realized they're going to look straight at Jesus and say, I don't want him. I don't want him. So I think he wept over that that there were ones who would refuse to come to find life. And there's those, and then he wept again for those for the city. Your time has come. And what's happened is that beautiful temple that you once had, it's gone. That beautiful temple that they've been working on for generations, it's going. And it's going to be terrible. Nobody says again, as he approached, he saw the city, he wept over it saying, if you knew that this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. You had the opportunity, and you've missed it. It's a lost opportunity, and it has massive implications for what you have done and what you have not done. And verse 44 is a very sad and painful verse particularly for Jewish people. Verse 44, Jesus says, they will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they'll not leave one stone on another in you. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In the Old Testament, it several times, well, a number of times, talks about visitation. God visited his people to bring life. God visited his people to bring judgment. This is the one that has to do with judgment. That's where God says, you know what? All the opportunities all around the world, the people that have had the most opportunity to see what God is actually doing is right here. This is like place zero where you have the opportunity to come see what God is doing. And you've looked at it. You've looked at Jesus. You looked at the miracles and said, I don't want them. And Jesus says, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You've had the opportunity to know, to know me, Jesus says, to see the miracles, to see God at work in a way that you've never experienced. And you keep saying, we don't want him. It is a tragedy, a huge tragedy. It was a lost opportunity for Israel. It would never be the same. Titus brought his four legions in, three of them, and then the fourth one came in. Titus claims in his writings and stuff, and Josephus was on actually doing the writing with for Titus, he said he didn't plan on burning the whole thing down. Whatever happened, somebody lit a fire, and it started, and they couldn't stop it, and it was disastrous. So many people were killed, so many children, so many people destroyed, and that temple that they'd worked on for so many years, it was just a wreck. And the Romans started clearing things off, and they were going to make their own special place so people could worship one of their idols. And the Jewish people were scattered. So many were killed, and it was a tragedy. And it was a lost opportunity for Israel. 
the reality is, for them as a people, it had huge, massive implications. But it's not just them. It's for us as way today. Today, there's a lost opportunity for many. There's many people that are hearing the gospel, many who've grown up hearing the gospel, people that have heard it very clear, who can look you right in the eye and say, you know what, I understand it clearly. I understand what this is about with Jesus, and I don't believe it, and I don't want him. When God gives you that much knowledge, that much opportunity to know him, and you turn away, that's not good. It's disastrous. And what it says, he said, it's true for the individual. What's true for Israel in the big sense, it's true for groups, and it's true for every person. That when we come in relationship, we're able to meet Jesus, to get to know him, to know what things he's done, to hear the miracles, to hear about what we have in the scriptures, to look at it, to know it, to fully say, I get it, I understand it, and I don't want it. That is, again, it's a tragedy. And it's a huge one, and it goes on every day around the world, particularly here in our world as well. The lost opportunity. One of the most famous verses in the Holman Christian, I'm using the Holman Christian standard, maybe slightly different the way you remember it. But one of the best known things is John 3.16. I knew that from when I'm a little kid, still remember it. For God, well, I'll do it the way they describe it here, Holman Christian. For God loved the world, God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you're willing to come, by repentance and faith, recognize I'm a sinner. I need Christ, and I want to come know him. He'll give it to us. He loved us. He gave us this one and only son so that whoever believes in him won't have perished but have eternal life. God did not send into the world that he might condemn the world, but the world might be saved. We have to be reminding ourselves, Jesus did not come and say, oh, how great this is going to be to send these people to hell. It's not that way at all. He didn't want to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he hasn't believed in the name of the one and only Son. It's a lost opportunity. That's not the end of the story in that sense. Thank God there are still people that are hearing the gospel, coming to faith in Christ. I mean, think how God is working. We're privileged to hear a number of people that are from, from China and other areas of part of the world, places that we thought maybe 50 years ago it would be impossible to have people that become to hear the gospel. And now we've got now more people than Chinese coming to faith than we could ever imagine. Churches propping up, going up all over the place. God is at work in a great way. And we're thankful for that. But it comes back to the fact that we have got a message that the world has to hear. And God is already in the process of doing remarkable things around the world. And we as a congregation are really, really privileged to be part of that. We have Pat Bull with us, who's working now full time. We've got Dara and Pam that are working with us. We have so many opportunities. And we need to make sure that what we do is make and focus on the fact that people at least can understand what the gospel is. How they respond cannot be our, what cannot be, we can't be held accountable for it, but we have to be responsible in bringing it to people. That we're open to sharing the good news with people. We don't shove it down their throat. We show it to them, let them know what it's about, and we let the Holy Spirit work in their life to open up their eyes and to say, hey, 
It's about Jesus. You're right. It is. And I want to know him. And the privilege that we have had, and we had Laura last week, and we're so glad that that was such a great testimony of how God is willing to use us. And it takes us right back to when we go to this passage. He came in there. Jesus did. And he was going to be rejected. And he was going to die. But next week, we're going to remember he's alive and well. And because he lives, we too will live. Lord, we thank you for this time of the year. We thank you for when we look at what Jesus did. We thank you that Jesus really was the king, the ultimate king, the king that we worship today, the king that we will worship until that day we go to be with you, Lord Jesus. And I assume when we get there, we're still going to be giving you praise and honor for you are the great king, the ultimate king, the king that we give our, 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 our life to. So be with us, Lord. Help us, we pray. Prepare our hearts as well for the music, but also for the Lord's Supper as we're reminded again of the cost that we might have a relationship with you. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.